can open up to Acts chapter 13. We are in a series in the book of Acts entitled Unstoppable, as we learn about the unstoppable gospel as God empowers his people through the Holy Spirit with the glorious news of Jesus Christ to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we're making our way. Last week you heard from Jeff Havisto, who did a great job of uh, preaching from Acts chapter 12, learning about God's wonderful deliverance of Peter and his church from the hands of Herod through the wonderful gift of prayer as God's people prayed for Peter. And we learned about the, the uh, wonderful means of grace we have to pray amidst the challenges we might face. This week we are uh, going to start into chapter 13 and then move beyond. But before we do that, I want to take a little bit of a pause uh, to take time over the next three weeks to talk about a topic that we see in Acts that's very prevalent in Acts and in the New Testament. And I think for many of us, it's something that we don't hear much about. That is the topic of New Testament prophecy, prophecy in the New Testament. We see it throughout Acts, and, and, and curiosity alone should prompt us to want to look at this topic and understand it better, but, but there's more than curiosity as a motivator for us, for I believe that God himself wants us to learn about this. He has featured this gift prominently in the New Testament, not just as a curiosity, but as a true gift for us to build us up in him for his purposes. And so uh, I can tell you at the outset that my desire, and I believe it's in line with the Scriptures and God himself, is that through learning about New Testament prophecy, as we take time over the next three weeks to look at what New Testament prophecy is, to look at why this is important, and to look at how we practice it biblically, that we will be affected, so affected by God's truth, and, and as trusting that God will speak through his word, that the result would be that we as a church and we as individuals Individuals would earnestly pursue this gift of New Testament prophecy for the good of our church and God's glory. That's what I believe the Lord wants to do. He wants to work in our hearts a earnest desire for this gift, an earnest desire for this gift to be practiced in our lives for our good and His glory. So with that in mind, let's pray because we want to hear from Him. I don't want you to be convinced uh, because I said so. Um, I want you to be convinced because God says so, and God himself has spoken to you and drawn you into this truth. That's what I want, and only God can do that. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are the good shepherd, that you watch over your sheep, that you care for us, that, that Christ, you have laid down your life for us, the Father, you've set your affection on us, and Holy Spirit, you are at work in us and through us. And so, Lord, I ask right now that you would help us grow in our understanding in our motivation and practice of the gift of prophecy. Lord, I pray right now as we look at this, I I imagine some of us having never heard of this or perhaps heard of it in the negative are thinking, oh boy, uh, what's this going to be about? I'm not comfortable. I pray, Lord, you would calm our fears and build our confidence in you and your words. 
And Lord, you'd help me to serve you and your people according to your word, no further, no less, that we might hear from you. Speak to us, Lord. Build us up in this and produce fruit in us and through us, Lord, for your glorious gospel purposes. We thank you, Lord, that you're faithful to speak and lead us. So we ask this, anticipating how you work, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Just looking in the book of Acts, we see New Testament prophecy mentioned. Uh, Our verse that we start with this morning is chapter uh, 13, verse 1. In describing this church in Antioch, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This wonderful church in Antioch was a, was a church that was so affected by the gospel. It, it had produced and created this church in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it had propelled this church to export what God had done, to, to, to export the gospel beyond them. But part of how that happened was, was God forming this church and then, and then the leadership of the church, which is what I believe is this group of people mentioned, and gifting them in many ways, certainly teaching being an important part of that. But also, look, there were prophets and teachers in this church. And part of how God worked and how God spoke to them, we don't know the details, and, and I, I imagine it was a, a manifold way that there were a lot of things that the Lord did, but, but he spoke to them, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. God used this gift of prophecy, I believe, with that to propel this church into the mission. So that gift, I believe Luke mentions it because it functions in an important way in what happens, what results in them being set apart, the Spirit speaking and them sending them. We can look elsewhere too. You can look earlier in Acts. We looked at uh, the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes and it falls on the disciples. And then uh, as they go out and, and they're, they're praising God, they're speaking in these languages they hadn't previously learned, they're declaring the wonders of God, and people are wondering what's going on. Peter explains it, and he uses, he cites Joel 2. He actually, uh, I believe, under the unction and authority of the Lord says this is the fulfillment of Joel 2. And Joel 2, when he quotes it, says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. On my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Peter's declaring that Joel 2 is fulfilled as the Spirit is poured out and, and God's people prophesy. So this promise is that the Spirit will be poured out on all sorts of people, not just great prophets like the Old Testament prophets, not just the apostles, but sons and daughters, young men, old men, male servants, female servants. They will receive the Spirit and they shall prophesy. There's this prevalency of prophecy we see in Joel 2 and in the book of Acts. Later on, we see other instances. We meet uh, the prophet. We have met the prophet Agabus. We'll see him later on. We meet uh, in the story in chapter 21. Uh, there's a story about Agabus, but it also mentions Philip, our Philip friend Philip the evangelist, who uh, 
was one of the seven deacons, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So we just a, just a little throwaway sentence there. So throughout the book of Acts, we see this gift of prophecy. What is this thing? What is prophecy? Why is it so prevalent in the book of Acts and elsewhere? And why should we care? Well, that's what I am seeking to address in this mini-series on prophecy. So let's today take some time, and we probably won't get through all this because we started a little late, but let's take some time to look at what is prophecy. Because I think before we would seek to earnestly desire it, we need to understand what it is. We need to look at what Scripture says and consider that and, and have our minds informed and perhaps certain prejudices or misunderstandings corrected, adjusted, that we might take the next step of understanding why it's important and then the final step of how, learning how to put it in place. So, prophecy. What is New Testament prophecy? There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 29 to 30. This is another passage talking uh, at length about this gift. And in that verse, it says, Let two or three prophets speak. Now, it's speaking of the local church meeting. Let two or three prophets speak. And let the others weigh what is said. So this is to be a normal part. Of a, of a meeting of God's people. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And then it says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And, and Paul, in addressing the Corinthians, he's teaching them. And he's speaking of this, the prophets responding to a revelation. And really what New Testament prophecy is, it's a non canonical speaking of a revelation from God. New Testament prophecy is a non-canonical. Canonical, uh, canon comes from the word canon, which is like measuring rod. It means the officially recognized uh, scriptures that we know. That is the, the very words of God. And, and uh, it's infallible, inerrant, the very words of God. That's the canon. That's the measuring stick. And prophecy is a non-canonical. It means it's not part of that body. It's not the same sort of speech at all. That's important to recognize. I'm going to try to prove that from Scripture, show that from Scripture as we go. So it's a non-canonical speaking of a revelation from God. So it, it comes from a revelation. God brings a revelation to us. And then there's a speaking from that. The revelation comes from God. The, the influence comes from God. The speaking is, is, comes from us. They're our words. So they're not God's words like Scripture. This book contains and is the very words of God. The very words of God. We know each word in here. In the original manuscripts, uh, each one is the very word of God. That's the canon of Scripture. He has given this to us, we know. Prophetic New Testament prophecy is not the very words of God. It's a non-canonical speaking of a revelation from God. Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology about this that Paul is simply referring to something that God may suddenly bring to mind or something that God may impress on someone's consciousness in such a way that the person has a sense that it is from God. It may be that the thought brought to mind is surprisingly distinct from the person's own train of thought, or that it's accompanied by a sense of vividness or urgency or persistence, or in some other way it gives the person a rather clear sense that it is from the Lord. So we're, it's, it starts with this revelation, this sense, you know, that, that God is highlighting a truth, that there's something that he's impressed on me, and I don't think it's just my thinking. That's the revelation. And then when we speak that forth, that is... New Testament prophecy. 
it's important just to take a little time to speak about Revelation. There are are different categories. There are different categories of Revelation. And we need to know where New Testament prophecy fits in. Revelation uh, basically is God revealing himself. Our God, thankfully, is a revealing God. He loves to show forth who he is. He loves to show forth his glory and his goodness. He's a God who communicates. He's a God who reveals himself. He shows himself. He delights in that, and he invites us to hear him. And he reveals himself in a number of ways, and it's, I think, important for us to, to think about this. First off, he reveals himself in what's called general revelation. In creation, we look around and we see God's creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. God, Psalm 19 teaches us that God reveals himself through his creation. Romans 1 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that we are without, or they are without excuse, the text says, Romans 1, 20. God has shown who he is through his creation. And it's glorious, isn't it? Looking at creation, it is a wonder just to look out and enjoy creation. Uh, And and I I really don't think that we're ever going to finish exploring creation and seeing the wonders of God and uh, I used to get to do a lot of that as a scientist, and I just loved it. And I just worked in one little area. Uh, well, I, I did a bunch of things, but my specialty in research was hydrogen, this little atom, the simplest atom. And there were volumes and volumes and volumes written about this one simple little atom, and we still hadn't understood it. And that just shows the glory of God just in that way. Maybe that's boring to you. Um, that's okay. I understand. But I know for each one of us, there's some way we look out and see glory. In creation, we see power, we see wisdom, we see beauty in his creation. That is God's revelation, and, and it's meant to be enjoyed, and it's meant to be something we experience God in. But in and of itself, it's not enough. It's not enough to know God. We cannot know him personally. It's kind of like if you go into someone's house, uh, you go into someone's house and you look around and see the beauty um, I'm thinking of a Pride and Prejudice illustration where Elizabeth goes into Mr. Darcy's house and sees all this this beautiful, glorious house. Anyone here know what I'm talking about? (laughs) All right, all the ladies have their hands up, yes, and a few men. Uh, She goes in. She already knows him to some extent, but she goes in the house and, and she sees what the house is like and gets a sense for what this guy is like. But she's not yet married to him. She doesn't really know him fully. And that's how it is with creation. God shows his glory and intrigues us with that, but it's not enough to have a relationship with him. God gives us his special revelation that reveals his very heart and the core truths we need to know to have a relationship with him, and that is through the scriptures. God has given us the scriptures. They are his special and authoritative revelation for us that we might know him and love him, and enjoy him. And it's in this wonderful book that we learn about the, the ultimate aspect of his re- revelation, Jesus Christ, who he is, what he was like, what he did, that he, that he came and lived this perfect life. It's, isn't, it, isn't it wonderful to read through the Gospels and, and, and receive the revelation of who God is as we read these wonderful stories about Christ? There's no one like him. 
We come to know who Christ is. We see his perfect life. We see his obedience, his kindness, his love. We see his obedience to the Father to the point of death on the cross. We learn in the scriptures that this death was not in vain, but it was to fulfill God's justice, to pay for the sins of his people, that we might be forgiven. And to, he, he offered up his righteous life on our behalf, that as we come to him, turning from our sin, turning from our self-trust, to trust in him, that he, he counts us in Christ forgiven and righteous, and we are welcomed in and adopted into his family. Beloved by Him, walking with Him and knowing Him forever. The book talks about what's in the future as well, what will come with the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it's glorious. It's wonderful. It's God's revelation to us, His special revelation. And there's nothing like the Scriptures. So we need to understand that. General revelation, special revelation, the Scriptures. And they, the Scriptures hold a unique place in revelation, unmatched in how they reveal God's heart and truth and how they reveal the the ultimate revelation of the glory of God in and through the gospel, the good news of Christ, crucified and resurrected. But in the scripture, we learn that there is another form of revelation as well. There's another way that God reveals himself that uh, that we see in Scripture itself that what we, can, what we can call subordinate revelation. It's subordinate revelation. It's under, under Scripture. It's under the authority. It's not Scripture. It is to fall under Scripture, and, and, and it's not in Scripture itself, but Scripture teaches us about it. It's subordinate revelation. Let's just look at some verses that speak about this. John chapter 10. Jesus says, My sheep... Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. The content of what he says is not mentioned here, but there is this hearing of, of, by his sheep of his voice. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Matthew 11, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So there's revelation to little children. Matthew 16, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There's revelation that Peter's receiving from God not mentioned the content of that. We know it, it led him to understand that Christ was God, the Son. Philippians 3, Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So we th- see throughout Scripture there is this pattern of revelation going on for God's people that is not contained in the Scriptures. Though it may have scriptural content in it, it, it is a revelation that's outside the Scriptures. Nowhere in this book does it say that Paul Buckley will become a Christian. Nowhere in this book does it say that whomever will, will come to, to know Christ. Nowhere in this book does it say specifically that Christ died for my sins personally, Paul Buckley's sins. How do I know? How do I know that I belong to him? How do I know that, that he's died for me? He, uh, by his Holy Spirit, has revealed to me, to us, if you are a believer, he has spoken these promises to you specifically. He's applied them by the Spirit. He's revealed that this is for you. 
You belong to me. The Spirit in us cries, Abba, Father. We receive revelation that we are His children. That's an experiential thing. We belong to Him. It's, it's experiential. It's subordinate revelation. It's not doesn't say it in the book by name that this is true for you. We receive it by the Spirit. And that's important. An important aspect of the revelation of God. It's subordinate. It's not the very words of God. But it is God's revelation to us. It's important to, to recognize that. And I think for every believer, we intuitively recognize this, that we hear from God. I mean, don't we come on Sundays to hear from God? Don't we come expecting God to speak to us? Isn't that what we hunger for? We don't want to come and just hear somebody, you know, give a lecture on the Bible. I mean, that's beneficial. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's wonderful. But we don't come thinking, I'm just going to kind of learn more, fill my mind with more truth. That's a good thing, to fill your mind with truth. We want more than that. We want to hear from God. We want God to speak to us personally and say, this truth is for you. I'm calling you to rest in Christ's righteousness. I'm calling you to come and, and, and respond to my embrace and be mine. I'm calling you to remember through communion what I have done for you, what you have in me, that I am your good shepherd. We come looking for that. We want to hear from Him. And that's Good and true. We want to hear from Him, and He is a speaking God. He reveals Himself, always according to the words, always according to this truth. And we experience Him speaking, and we're to treasure that. We live by that. That is part of the normal Christian life. Now, some people have a hard time with the, the linking these sort of things with prophecy and and for different reasons i can't go into all the different reasons it can freak them out and and there's one uh very godly wise christian man uh, a seminary professor called richard gaffin who would uh hold to the position that the gift of prophecy is not for today it ceased back in apostolic era uh but even he uh recognizes this reality that we're talking about he says often too what is seen as prophecy is actually a spontaneous spirit worked application of scripture a more or less sudden grasp of the bearing that biblical teaching has on a particular situation or problem. All Christians need to be open to these more spontaneous workings of the Spirit. Now, if you know Richard Gaffin, uh, he's a, a strong and strict cessationist. But he, as a brother, is recognizing that God speaks to his people. And he, he prefers to call it illumination. I love the word illumination. I use the word illumination, but I think there's more to it than illumination. Illumination is turning on a light, right? And indeed, the Spirit of God turns on a light when we read the Scriptures, and He shows us things. But He doesn't just turn on the light. He says, this is for you. You're mine. I want you to obey this. You know that situation that you're struggling with at work? This is the truth you need for that situation. It's more than just simple illumination. It's application. It's a a timely and personal word from God by the Spirit. It is a revelation of truth to us. And that's our experience as God's people. And I, I'm not going to quibble over words, illumination, revelation. I just would prefer to use a word that is used in Scripture. It is a revelation, and we regularly receive this sort of revelation from God. This subordinate revelation. And, and let us recognize it, appreciate it, and let us put it in its proper place. It's not the canon. 
And we are never to treat it that way. And if it is genuinely from God, it will not direct us away from the Scriptures. It will direct us to the Scriptures. It will be grounded in the Scriptures. It will cause us to appreciate the promises and the truth in the Word. And when we're done receiving such a revelation, we won't be thinking, wow, that was really cool. I like hearing those sort of things all the time. We'll say, this is really cool. This is wonderful. These promises are powerful and real. I love what God has shown me in the book. That's God's heart. That's how he works. New Testament prophecy is non-canonical. Non-canonical speaking of a revelation from God. It's non-canonical. It's not, it's not scripture. The revelation is from God. The speaking is from us. So when we speak out those things, when God gives us a revelation that we believe is for others, the words are our words. We're trying to accurately report what we believe God is impressing. And I I try to do that on Sundays, and I would encourage all of us to be ready on Sundays to share such things. They're they're my words. Often I hear, get an impression, I get a picture, and I believe this isn't just me. Sometimes it's just for me. But the Lord wants to speak these truths perhaps to someone here. So I get a revelation, and I think, how do I communicate that? How do I put words to it? What what is it that God's trying to say? And And try to work through that. We'll talk more about how to do that. But that is New Testament prophecy. Sometimes we see in Scripture there's particularly gifted people who who get very significant revelations, very specific things to say, and they even speak about future events. That can happen too. But it's more than just telling what's going to happen in the future. We'll learn about this next week. It's for the encouragement, the, the building up, the consolation of God's people. It's important, just next, and and I recognize this message is very different than a normal message. It's um, more teaching heavy, but I think we need to understand what this gift is so that we can walk in it. It's important for us to distinguish this gift from Old Testament prophecy. Sometimes we stumble, people stumble over that because they look at Old Testament prophecy and think New Testament prophecy has got to be the same thing. And, 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 I mean, I don't want to be one of those guys. And I know the Scriptures well enough that they were held to this standard that if, if they were wrong in any way, they were to be put to death. So I'm not touching this thing. I want to keep on living. Um, and so it's important for us to understand the differences. And indeed, Old Testament prophecy is different. Old Testament prophecy was limited to specific individuals who were anointed and called by God to speak His very words. And so uh, you see... Old Testament prophecy reported that way. The the words themselves, not just the revelation, but the words themselves are reported as the very words of God. You can look throughout the the Old Testament. Haggai 1.13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, uh, Samuel is speaking, For rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. So uh, Saul had rejected the words that Samuel spoke. So he was saying these words are the very words of God. Jeremiah, now the word of the Lord came to me. So in the Old Testament, the words themselves are the very words of God. They are, they are authoritative. And it's never treated otherwise. And that's why in Deuteronomy 18 it says, The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Because God wanted to guard his people from false words, because these words carried weight. It was a different time in the history of the church, and this particular office functioned differently than a New Testament prophet. We see a difference in Acts chapter 2. 
Joel 2, this promise of Joel. All of a sudden now, the Spirit is no longer just poured out on these select individuals, these Old Testament prophets, to speak the very words of God. But now the Spirit is to go out to all of God's people. The teaching of the New Testament is that that experience of the Spirit is for every believer. And that Joel 2 promise, it's, there's all sorts of people, all of God's people are receiving the Spirit, and all sorts of people are prophesying. It's no longer this authoritative speech. It's spread out throughout the body. Just You can look elsewhere. Look at how... We won't do this now. We'll look a little more uh, next week at how Paul relates to the Corinthians in chapter 14. He, he says to the Corinthians, now, now you guys know the Corinthian church a little bit perhaps. This was a church that was full of charismaniacs, all right, people who were just like distracted by the gifts of the Spirit, and it, and it would have just been mayhem. Uh, thank God for the relative order that he's led us in as a church. But you can imagine if we were like the, the Corinthians, you'd come in here and, and you'd be greeted at the door by someone maybe not even speaking in English, shakes your hand, shouting out in tongues, oh, no, no, and you come in and people are in tongues, all sorts of things going on. You don't know what's going on. And it would have just been mayhem. That was what the church was like. Now, if New Testament prophecy were like Old Testament prophecy, that, that if you got it wrong, you were to be killed, and, and it was the very words of God, do you think Paul would have said to, the, to these charismaniacs guys, earnestly desire to prophesy. I want you guys all to prophesy. Paul would be very irresponsible to do that with a church like the Corinth because he would get them all killed if it was Old Testament prophecy. It's not. It's different. It's broader. It's not authoritative anymore in that way. If anything, we see the, the role of the Old Testament prophet transferring to the role of the New Testament apostle. It's the apostles who can speak, as God leads them, the very words of God. It's the apostles, not the prophets, who speak and who who are in that sort of role. Uh, And so they speak and their words are recorded. And the ones that God has designated, the words that God has designated, are in the book. Those are the very words of God. The New Testament, the very words of God. But the words that were spoken by the church were not. And we see that uh, through Joel 2. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14. We see it elsewhere, too, where they're called to test the prophets. They're called to test the words. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, even as Paul talks about it, he says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When Christ comes back, the partial, this, this, this experience of prophecy and knowing will pass away. We will know fully and we will no longer prophesy. We will, we will be experiencing the truth. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul's saying that we see in a mirror dimly. We don't get the whole picture. This is clear. This is, this is the very words of God. This is established. But my impressions and what I say... It's foggy. I don't always see and understand rightly. And certainly when I add add my best attempt to explain it, it's even foggier. We see in a mirror dimly. We know in part. We prophesy in part. It's not Old Testament prophecy. It's different. Elsewhere, too, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Let the others think about, is this God's word? Is this true for us? 
Do I need to respond to what God's saying? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. Isn't that interesting? There's probably good reasons why the Thessalonians might be tempted to despise prophecy. It looks like somebody was prophesying inaccurately about Christ having already come back. And so Paul doesn't say, hey, guys, just throw out that prophecy thing. You know, there's some kooks out there, and I want to protect you from it, so don't do it. He says, no, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Hold fast what is good. New Testament prophecy is subordinate revelation, not the very words of God. God. D.A. Carson is a uh, Bible scholar I trust very much. He says about this section of Scripture and this whole idea that, uh, that New Testament prophecy needs to be like Old Testament prophecy and so forth. He says, when Paul presupposes in 1 Corinthians 14.30 that the gift of prophecy depends on a revelation, we are not limited to a form of authoritative revelation that threatens the finality of the canon. To argue in such a way, and I believe much of us, many of us, when we struggle with New Testament prophecy, perhaps this is what's going on, to argue in such a way is to confuse the terminology of Protestant systematic theology, for all it's worth, it's a good thing, but to confuse that terminology with the terminology of the Scripture writers. Sometimes we have set up categories in our minds of how revelation is supposed to work. And those categories end up excluding a way that God wants to reveal himself. Thus the, the, the dearth, the lack of prophetic ministry in the church. Because we think, oh no, we don't want to mess with those categories. But that's not the concern of Scripture. Scripture calls us to this practice. Uh, let's just take a look at a case study real quick. And we'll conclude with that. We'll have more next week. The case study of Agabus. Agabus is a prophet who operates in the book of Acts, and we see him in Acts chapter 21. And so we'll take a look at this story, um, see if we can make our way through this story. Uh, and so let me read it to you, and then I'll just, we'll just learn from it. It says in Acts 21 chapter 10, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. I'll give you a little background. Paul's journeying towards Jerusalem near the end. Well, not near the end, but near the end of the book of Acts. And, um, and, he, he's, and he's getting ready to bring an offering there. And on his way, he meets Agabus and others. And this is, this is the story. So he bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Later on, it says, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. So he's in the temple area. Paul's in there later, and this is going on. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. 
And it goes on. The story goes on. So Agabus tells Paul, this is what's going to happen. When you go to Jerusalem, he says, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So he predicts what will happen to Paul. But it's interesting to look at the story. Agabus actually doesn't get things quite right. He gets things a little bit off. Now, this is a, uh, a gifted prophetic man recognized in the early church. He says first that Paul will be bound by the Jews when it's actually the Romans who bind him, not the Jews. Secondly, he says the Jews will hand him into the hands of the Gentiles. No, the Jews were trying to hand him into death. They were beating him. The Gentiles came in and intervened. The Romans came in and intervened and rescued him. By Old Testament standards, Agabus is wrong and perhaps even liable to be put into death. Carson says, yeah, Carson, I can think of no reported Old Testament prophet whose prophecies are so wrong in the details. But this is New Testament prophecy. Agabus is hearing a revelation and then putting it in his own words, acting it out even as he does it. The best way to understand it, according to Scripture, is that he gets the words and and the implications off. We don't know what happened. Perhaps he saw a picture of Paul bound and then thought, well, this is what's going to happen. He added his own sense of of things to it. That's the way that we are to understand, I believe, this passage with Agabus. It's a case study for us in light of all these other scriptures to argue for what New Testament prophecy is. If the band could come up as we finish up for today. God has given us this gift of New Testament prophecy. And I know for some of us, we're processing through, and, th- and that's great. Trusting God will speak to you, want you to be convinced by the Scriptures. But he's given us this wonderful gift to serve under, under the authority of his words, never in any way functionally or the- theologically displacing the authority of his word, the wonder of the Scriptures. But coming alongside and illuminating and applying and encouraging us in the truth of the scripture as God reveals himself. It's my prayer that as we understand this gift, we will embrace what the Lord has for us and practice it and benefit from it, putting putting it in its proper place, loving the word, using this gift to direct us to the truths in this word, to walk them out for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and ask you, Lord, to teach us, lead us. Lord, I just covered so much material in such a short time. We thank you, Lord. Your word is there. We can go back to your word. You are faithful. So, Lord, teach us, lead us, convince us of truth, and help us to walk in this gift. Lord, your gifts are a blessing for us, for our good that we might walk in your purposes, that you might be glorified. We thank you for this gift. Help us to understand it, to apply it, and then, Lord, use it to do your wondrous work in and through our lives, we pray. Amen.